Future City is made possible by McCormick and Company. Through its Flavor for Life program, McCormick helps teach kids and families in Baltimore how to replace salt, sugar, and fat. More information can be found at McCormickCorporation.com. Hey there, I'm Wes Moore, and you're listening to Future City here on WYPR, the monthly show that explores innovative approaches to Baltimore's most pressing issues and where we move the conversation from what's wrong to what's next. This month in the show, we're talking about the future of philanthropy. It's been an eventful year or so in the world of philanthropy, with the COVID-19 crisis revealing the limits of the social safety nets and also showing how people from grassroots mutual aid networks to the most well-known philanthropic institutions have stepped up to support one another during such an uncertain time. However, it's also been a time of racial reckonings and questions about how resource allocation can be done in equitable ways and where traditional philanthropy fits in all of that. So today on the show, we're talking about how philanthropy is responding to the changing world and learning about what's next in the worlds of charitable giving and solidarity. Later in the show, we hear from someone who wants to, quote, decolonize wealth and also meet a writer who's been covering trends in philanthropy. But first, we are going to start right here in Baltimore, and I'm absolutely thrilled to be joined by Dr. Shanesha Sauls, who is the president and CEO of the Baltimore Community Foundation. Uh, in full disclosure to our listeners, uh, I have known and admired uh, Shanesha for, for years. And, uh, and, and not only is she a friend, but uh, she is someone who I very proudly follow uh, in the work that she does uh, with the Baltimore Community Foundation in partnership. And uh, and, and absolutely thrilled that she could join us here today. Uh, also in disclosure, I am a former board member of the Baltimore Community Foundation. So uh, so I just know that the organization uh, that I sat on the board of is in remarkably good hands with Shanesha. But Shanesha, it is great to talk with you. Thank you so much for joining us here on Future City. Oh, thank you for having me. I treasure our friendship and uh, your former involvement with PCF. And I love that we continue to find ways to work together. Thank you. Amen. Amen. And, we're, and we'll, we'll talk about that as well. But, you know, but but first, I, I wanted to see if you can just give us a sense of what the philanthropic community looks like in Baltimore today and, and what role has it historically played inside of the city? Yeah. So, you know, Baltimore is a, a fascinating city when it comes to philanthropy. Um, so often um, as a city, we're compared to a place like Cleveland. Um, because there are a lot of similarities in terms of Baltimore and Cleveland. But when you think about philanthropy, um, Baltimore's philanthropy is much more of a continuum. I mean, we're very diverse. There are myriad uh, funders, there are myriad foundations, um, of which BCF is an important and relevant part. Whereas in a city like Cleveland, all roads kind of go through one particular foundation. Baltimore, we're a little bit more diverse um, and democratic. Uh, and so we've got uh, foundations of all shapes and sizes. We've got private foundations that are in billions of dollars of endowments. We've got foundations that are in um, the millions of dollars. Um, and BCF sits somewhere um, in the median. Um, uh, you know, in terms of like the role of philanthropy, so we've got big organizations that have been around for years, like the Associated has been around for over 100 years. You've got um, the United Way that's been around for almost 100 years. BCF and a lot of the private foundations, uh, the Abels, um, the Weinbergs even, we're actually relatively young um, in the scheme of things. And what makes us young is that means that we're scrappy um, and we're not necessarily um, as static 
um, as I think people think philanthropy has traditionally been. And there's actually evidence over the last couple of decades of where we've seen philanthropy change in Baltimore and be more responsive. Well, and I, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because I think oftentimes people, when they think about philanthropy, there's like one idea of what they think about uh, a philanthropic organization does, right? That it's like, oh, yes, that's an organization that makes grants for this or or supports organizations for that. Uh, but but there's a broad definition for what people talk about the world of of, of philanthropy. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the nuance of a community foundation and how a community foundation fits into that broader understanding of what people mean by a philanthropic impact on a community? So obviously I'm biased uh, because I happen to lead the Baltimore Community Foundation uh, and we are unusual uh, among philanthropy for a number of reasons. One of the reasons um, that I think is the most poignant is that we really are kind of, um, we represent the democratization of philanthropy. Um, we are accessible to funders and donors of all shapes and sizes. Uh, we can support um, what people would consider the small donor that gives consistently um, and actively um, to a number of organizations. We can support that donor. We can support the mid-sized donor. We can support the large donor and they all find their home here. What's also unusual about, uh, about our community foundation um, is that we have to pass the public test. So we are a public charity, which means that we have to show in tangible ways that we have broad public support. And the way that BCF does that is that we actually value equally what our donors bring. And those are donors of all shapes and sizes, races, socioeconomic backgrounds and experiences. Uh, what our community partners, who are kind of the first responders in every way to the most relevant issues, in our, in our neighborhoods. And thirdly, what our public partners um, can do in terms of policy. And we value those things equally and we're actually given permission and we're directed by our broad stakeholders to do so. So there's obviously massive wealth disparity in the United States in general and in Baltimore in particular. We also know that philanthropy can be more than just charitable giving. So how can we use foundations and philanthropy to address the core issues that exist like wealth disparity? So, you know, when people think about philanthropy, and, you know, I don't want to put too much of a rose-colored glasses on these, on, on this issue. I mean, it is about capital and money and lots of it, right? And, and to some extent, that is true, um, particularly when that stands against what communities experience in their day-to-day -day lives. Um, I was actually on a call this morning with a, with a donor, and we were talking about this K-shaped recovery, mm -hmm. um, that a lot of us have either significantly benefited over the last year financially, or at least maintain um, our way of life. But in the communities that we partner with, it's a very different experience. And so as much as I laud what BCF does, and I'm so proud of our, of our broad community, I think we always have to struggle as uh, philanthropists and philanthropists to maintain our humility. Mm -hmm. um, and to also understand that with that money and capital and lots of it, it also means that we actually have the freedom to fail. And a lot of the people that we work with don't have that freedom. So to get to your question, like, so the first thing has to do with money, right? And so we have different ways at a community foundation and even in private foundations where you can mobilize that capital in order to do the best good, to do no harm uh, to the communities and to empower them. So the most obvious way tends to be through the grant making um, that various uh, foundations have. For our foundation, we focus on neighborhood uh, development and investing in people and the organization of people, like what we call organizing. Um, the the uh, favorite term of this has to do with social capital. We believe that if you invest in people, you invest in people's 
dreams, goals, objectives, and their ability to network and bring those goals to fruition, you can transform communities. And so our neighborhood work since 2018, most recently, has been sort of using that broad strategy that BCF has been investing in for decades and focusing in on neighborhoods, specifically in West Baltimore, that are majority Black that are undervalued. Um, we cannot tell a story about Baltimore's recovery, much less Baltimore's future, um, when we have whole swaths of the city and of the region that tend to be majority Black, where people are not able to build wealth in their neighborhoods and their homes. Um, I'm glad that um, um, you brought this up. I had a conversation with my colleague um, uh, who her story is to collect the best, uh, her, her job is to collect the best stories. And she told the story of this um, executive director of a community development corporation that we're helping to find in West Baltimore. And she looked around Forest, she looks around Forest Park. You've got these beautiful homes, great pieces of land, access to um, major highways. You can easily get to DC and get to Columbia. It's still in the city. There's a golf course um, in, in many cases within walking distances. And she said that these are, these neighborhoods are livable and walkable. And a generation ago, people bought into the dream that we told them, which is the middle-class dream, that you buy a house, you work hard, your house appreciates, and then you can leave that home to your progeny. And in these communities, that is not true, right? And so a part of what philanthropy can do and what our goal is to do with our donors and with our partners and with residents is to figure out how do we make that middle-class dream investing in people, investing in their goals, making um, um, the communities livable and walkable, um, keep that particular promise so that wealth can build over time. So that's one way through grant making. And there are various other ways, work faith force development, um, et cetera. The other is how we invest our dollars, right? So the, the beauty of philanthropy um, and the, the power of compound interest is over time through market performance, and the market tends to go up and up and up, at least over time, even if it's volatile in particular moments, is that the more that you invest, the more that you're able to give to the community. But how you do, how you work those investments and how you manage those investments also says something about your organization. And so there's a whole conversation about focusing on um, environmental, social, and governance uh, issues when it comes to investments using um, impact investing, sort of this new tool where you're putting the money to work in Main Street versus the uh, money to work in Wall Street. And BCF is very proud to join other uh, foundations in Baltimore uh, uh, to invest in that way. And, and, and this is sort of first in for you all. I'm proud to announce that as of the beginning of 2020, BCF has actually engaged a Black-owned firm, actually an Afro-Latina woman with a majority Black staff that is now our investment advisor on our more than $200 million portfolio. That is a huge coup. We're very excited. Um, and we think that is sort of walking the walk and setting the example. Oftentimes when people can say, well, we have to be able to um, have a, a, a colorblind or a race blind philosophy in the way we think about both giving and in the way we think about our impacts. BCF has actually has, has leaned in significantly. And this is not just a post murder of George Floyd conversation. This is something that you all have led, have led on even well before that. Why was adding an explicit racial lens in the way that we think about both funding and impact so important when it came to driving the solutions that you all were aiming for? Yeah, I mean, so if we think about what this term race equity really gets at, it is this idea that you can predict outcomes by race. And so the idea of something being uh, racially blind or irregardless of race hasn't worked, right? Because um, the idea 
um, would be that if those things were true, that you could not predict outcomes by race. That does not mean that everyone gets the same thing. What it means is that if you applied an economic scientific analysis to outcomes across a variety of dimensions, race should not predict whether or not you succeed or not. And it does, which means that you do have to have a focus on an understanding and an attention to the ways that race inform the inputs, the process, and ultimately the outcomes. And that is borne out by the facts and by the science. And I think when you start the conversation there, I think it opens up a different way of thinking about grant making um, and investing in communities. Um, we are fortunate that we are in a moment, and I say broadly we, um, where people are increasingly comfortable about having the conversation. And what you're seeing, and we're certainly seeing at BCF, is that we have from our fund holders to our, uh, our grant making committees, they are being really intentional about the ways that, um, that race should inform how we think about our decision-making. As a matter of fact, in 2021, uh, BCF will be um, giving some additional grants to support Black-led organizations and Black communities, specifically to augment um, these questions. And this has been through the generosity of a number of donors, um, as well as uh, through the guidance and direction of our, of our trustees. The world of philanthropy over many years really has also come to the point that it's come under this frame of attack about how are we using capital and directing people to use capital. When you think about that and kind of in this moment, are there problems that you see within a philanthropic frame that you want to see change? And how exactly do you counter the line of argument when people say, well, you know, I'm not sure philanthropy is really getting or, or giving, uh, you know, uh, what they actually say is going to become as the final product for what they're actually targeting. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I think that criticism should be taken in the spirit in which it's given. And you have to, there has to be an acknowledgement that it's true, right? Um, even if it's not true all the time, that it's valid, that there's some validity to it. So, you know, I just have to say points well taken. Um, and I would just say that a part of the way that philanthropy has to be responsive is just learning to listen um, and take the criticism. Um, you know, I, you know I'll, I'll again make this very personal. Um, in the last few years, um, we've had moments at BCF where we realized that we didn't know as much as we thought we knew, and that our, our, our ties in the communities weren't exactly what we thought they were. And so we realized that we needed to deepen our relationships by building real trust, not the transactional trust that comes from giving someone money. And it's really easy to make friends when you're giving out money, but the kinds of, the kinds of trust that allows you to strengthen the relationship and help empower people to do what's best. That means listening more, that means following more, and um, that means trusting the communities to tell us who is actually their leader and not our deciding who is their leader. Um, I think that is a, those are sets of principles and values that BCF um, um, wants to realize in each engagement with, with the community. I've been speaking with Dr. Shanesha Sauls, who's the president and CEO of the Baltimore Community Foundation and, and truly one of the brightest lights in, in the world of philanthropy. Dr. Sauls, thank you so much for joining us today on Future City and thank you for your continued leadership. Oh, thank you, Wes. Uh, it's always a pleasure. So great to meet and hopefully one day we can all be together, connected that's in person. A, that's right, we will. We'll, we'll get together soon. We are gonna get together soon. Thank you so much. Now we have to take a brief break, but please do not go away because when we come back, we'll meet someone who aims to, as he puts it, decolonize wealth. That's coming up on Future City right here on 88.1 WIPR.
Welcome back. I'm Wes Moore, and you are listening to Future City here on 88.1 WYPR. Now, on today's show, we're looking at the future of philanthropy. And before we went to break, we heard about the philanthropic community here in Baltimore. But now I'm so excited that we're going to be able to zoom out and talk about the rest of the country with my friend Edgar Villanueva. Uh, Edgar is the principal of Decolonizing Wealth Project and Liberated Capital, and he's the author of Decolonizing Wealth, Indigenous Wisdom to Heal Divides and Restore Balance. He advises a range of organizations on advancing racial equity within their investment strategies. He's enrolled as a member of the Lumbee tribe and lives in New York City, and he is someone who I have long followed and admired in this work. Edgar, thank you so much for joining us today, and welcome to Future City. Thank you, Wes. It truly is a pleasure. And so for, uh, first, why don't we start with the uh, with the name of your project and your book, Decolonizing Wealth. I I've always been so taken and struck by that. But, you know, for our listeners, what do you mean by that, about this idea of decolonizing wealth? Thanks for asking that. You know, I think the word decolonizing is, is really be, uh, becoming sort of a household term these days. Uh, in part thanks to the movie Black Panther, which helped me with my work and, quite, uh, <laughs> and helping folks kind of get their minds around. Decolonization is really the, the act of trying to undo the harmful impacts of colonization. So to fully understand it, folks have to take a deep dive into um, unpacking what colonization is and what it has been. We um, have not been taught the accurate history of, of what has transpired in our country, um, and we often romanticize ideas of colonization, right? When you think back to uh, stories in school around the Western expansion and, and also these images in, in media and how we celebrate and make heroes out of uh, folks like Christopher Columbus, who um, was a colonizer. And so there's, there's a lot to sort of unlearn around, around what colonization was historically and what it currently is, because it, it is a force that is still um, actually tearing families apart and extracting resources from communities and separating and dividing all of us. Decolonization for me is, is really starts with understanding and acknowledging um, that, that history of violence and um, and thinking about what is the path to repairing or, or healing that. Um, so I, I simply kind of think of decolonization um, as a, a process of healing. Well, and, 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 I, and I think you also do a, a really good and important job of, of, of framing that colonization did not happen, not just accidentally, but it actually took capital infusion, right? That underlined this, uh, this, this measure of, of colonization. Uh, and so as we're talking about the usage of capital to be able to decolonize wealth and fund allocation, budget justice, all these other things, how, how, do, how do we factor that into the thinking behind the tools that we have to actually decolonize wealth? You know, when we think about the, the history of colonization, uh, which under that I include uh, historical uh, events like, like slavery and the slave trade, which really established the economic system that we have um, in the U.S. that is built upon extraction and oppression. And, you know, so wealth and money has historically been, um, you know, the accumulation of it through, through greed and um, just kind of taking and stealing land and stealing money from communities has resulted in, in so much trauma in the world, right? 
Um, and the fact is that um, we we all have some level of trauma with money, whether we, we have money or we don't have money that we have to come to terms with because of its connection to, to history. I think looking forward and, uh, you know, what I propose in, in my work in, uh, at Decolonizing Wealth Project is that we can flip that paradigm. If wealth, if money has been something that has been used to um, oppress, to separate, to dominate, right? The hoarding of wealth and this worldview that we have um, in this country around money that, that feeds into colonial dynamics like scarcity mindsets, for example. Um, if we could shift that, then perhaps we can use money itself or wealth itself as a tool for healing. And that can be so if we actually um, shift where capital was flowing, if we prioritize money and resources and wealth building in those communities like Black and Indigenous communities that historically have been prevented through policy and through by theft um, from building wealth. We can actually use money um, as medicine, as, as a way to help repair. We can't undo what's happened over 500 years, but if we use money differently with a different spirit, uh, with a different frame, then perhaps we can begin to uh, think about a healing um, in, a, in a new direction for using resources. And, and, but it, and it's fascinating because it's one thing that that philanthropy oftentimes historically has not done well at all, where where, you know, you think about uh, often that you have many philanthropic platforms that like to say, well, we want to approach this with a with a, a race neutral or a colorblind perspective uh, without understanding not just the dynamics that exist within society, but also, you know, the measures of complicity that uh, that that should be owned on that. What are some of the ways you think philanthropy has actually failed? over the years when it comes to racial, economic, and environmental justice? And, and what are some of the things that you think can and should be done when it comes to actually turning ahead on those different dynamics? You know, I, I hope that if 2020 um, taught us anything, it is that any that, that race impacts everything. There's, race neutral is over. There's no such thing as, as race neutral. And especially when we're designing uh, community inter interventions when we're designing solutions in our in our, um, in our cities and at the federal level, we have to bring race on the table. We have to be explicit about it, or we're going to be uh, naive to design strategies that may help some folks but will not um, impact community as a whole. Philanthropy in itself, I think, where we have dropped the ball historically is that. One, we've kind of been a, a little bit sort of, I think of the emperor not having clothes, um, detaching ourselves as like the good guys because we are doing the good work of helping communities from the system um, of, of capitalism and other types of harmful and extractive practices that have resulted in this massive race wealth gap that exists. Um, the truth is philanthropy has is a byproduct of that system, right? We have these institutions that were established because of the ability of, of wealthy folks, mostly white folks, being able to benefit from the accumulative advantages um, historically of, of building wealth that results in our industry. So I think, uh, you know, I know over the last three years, we've been in a deep process of reckoning and grappling and coming to terms with that, that yes, we have a great mission and we wanna do good work in communities, but we also have been a part of the problem if we're honest about it. So what is our responsibility to try to right that wrong in the best way possible? 
Where we have failed, um, honestly, has been across the board historically. We absolutely ha have no parity around diversity. We know that 92% of foundation executives are white, 90% of foundation boards are white. And, and, you know, this matters. So this is not a dig at white relatives listening, right? But it absolutely matters where to, to have representation in these, these places of, of power and in these decision-making roles, because there's a direct correlation between who's sitting there and where money goes. And we know that because when we look at grant-making data over the past several years, we know that uh, where dollars are going from these philanthropic institutions um, less than 10% of those dollars are benefiting communities of color. And so not only do we have a diversity um, crisis, we also have an, uh, an injustice um, around where money is going, frankly, because again, taking it back to history, when you look at the role that black people, indigenous people, other people of color have played in helping to build this bounty of resources in the richest country in the world, it's actually an injustice that our communities are not benefiting from philanthropic investment in, in a way that's equitable. I think where we're going with that, Wes, is you know, um, because of this reckoning and a bit of truth and reconciliation kind of work that's been happening across the sector. Um, and thanks to uh, social movements like the Movement for Black Lives in 2020 um, that really brought some fuel to this progress, um, I'm seeing a shift that really inspires me. I'm seeing folks be explicit about race and naming um, that we want to invest in Black-led organizations and Native-led organizations, for example. Um, we're seeing, I think, a, a dramatic increase um, in the resources that are going to those communities. I'm seeing initiatives to, to really diversify um, staffing and board structures. And then where the rubber really meets the road when we talk about equity is, are we actually seeing a shift in who has ownership and self-determination over those resources? And that's what really excites me because I'm seeing um, models of foundations beginning to pay out reparations in community and to to tap into sort of like their endowments to redistribute wealth um, in funds like mine, Liberated Capital, to give us full self-determination over how we wanna invest those funds in our, in our communities without um, any strings attached to those um, original donors. When people talk about philanthropy, that it's oftentimes about money and, and capital, but it's actually more than that too. It's, it's, it's oftentimes where wealth has been created from, and that's land. Mm -hmm. Where does land? fit into economic and racial justice movements as a resource reallocation tool? You know, growing up watching Oprah, I just remember her uh, saying so many times, <laughs> you know, land ownership, they ain't making more land, right? So uh, <laughs> land is absolutely a vital form of wealth. And I know for indigenous communities where I come from and also in black communities, you know, um, attachment to the land historically has been something that's been deeply spiritual and uh, a way for us to sustain our communities and way of life. I am seeing in some of the conversations happening across the country right now around reparations um, that we are um, thinking of reparations from the lens of it, it's not just a, a payout necessarily to uh, folks who have been impacted historically, but from an indigenous perspective, there are land back campaigns that are really advocating for, for land to be um, given back to indigenous communities, um, you know, from, from which that land was taken. Where do you think is the, is the collide 
of these conversations about truth, reparative justice, philanthropy, reparations, land, all of these things. How, how do you see that conversation moving forward uh, in these next years? You know, I think it's 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 ultimately um, it always comes back to money. And even in, in social movements where folks are organizing around police accountability or climate justice or um, you know, affordable housing. It, it's all about money and how, um, you know, a small percentage of people are are building wealth off of the exploitation and the oppression of other folks. So I think that when we're thinking about if you're you're working in social movements or advocacy, we've always got to ask the question, who is getting rich off of this oppression? Mm-hmm. I think many of us who do work in that space don't come from money and our, our wealth and sometimes don't go as far to think about that question. And so we're we're looking at you know policy change or, or human rights, which is really important, but we've got to go deeper to understand. Um, how, um, you know, someone is actually making money off of that oppression. And that's where we need to also include, um, you know, some strategy or target around that. The other, you know, ultimately what I, where I hope we go with this, and if there's any silver lining or in, from the past year with the pandemic, um, where, you know, it's the first time in my lifetime, Wes, where I felt like we were all impacted by this at, at some level, right? Regardless of our background, race, ethnicity, you know, social economic status, we all felt this, this collective grieving in this country, right? We've all been through something that it touched our lives in some way. And in that, I, I sense a, a, a mature level of solidarity um, that, I've, that I've never, you know, imagined before happening in this country. You know, I want to acknowledge we're still very torn apart, right? And we, we know that half of this country voted one way, half voted the other way. But I think there's an opportunity to, um, you know, to, to go through a door or to, to imagine what a truth and reconciliation process might look like, um, given uh, the collective grieving that we've all been experiencing. Um, I think there's more now uh, an acknowledgement that um, around racial um, disparities more than ever. I think there is, um, you know, a a sensitivity and an openness and and new places to consider the role of privilege and whiteness and and all of that in this conversation. And what I'm experiencing is, um, uh, you know, more grace um, in in a lot of spaces where folks actually want to jump into a process and think about our collective humanity around, you know, how, how do we all come together to, to be a part of some conversation that's that, that's a solution? Um, I you know I I've done enough healing to know as an indigenous person there's a lot of a lot more healing that has to happen in my community, but I've also um, acknowledged that there's healing that needs to happen in white communities and that white people if they can see that they have also been traumatized by white supremacy, right? It impacts all of us. What's happening, what happened in Atlanta, what happened in Boulder, what's happening all over the place, this racial violence and this false ideology of of white supremacy that was created to like maintain power is actually harming white people um, in, in a different way perhaps, but we are all impacted by it. And the time is up on that. Like we are so tired of the death we are so tired of the, the pain and harm. And so if we can come together with that, um, 
collective understanding, there just might be a way for us to, to move forward and to think about collective healing. Because for, for me, as an Indigenous person who deeply holds the values of restorative justice, I, I believe that we've got to be in some type of process with the oppressor in order for us to all to break the cycle of violence and to, to move forward. So that's my vision. I think there's a role for, for movements to be on the front end leading that. I think there's a role for uh, philanthropy to fund that type of truth and healing work. Um, and I think there's a role for all of us to be involved, starting in our own families and talking to our children and our, our circles of influence around what it means to show up right now and to be a part of um, some type of work to heal ourselves and to heal um, our communities. Edgar, your leadership uh, is, is so key and instrumental to this. And, and, and you're absolutely right that this is not the responsibility of a group. Uh, it's a responsibility of all groups to be able to go through this journey. Um, you know, I've, I've, been, I've been speaking with Edgar Villanueva, who is the principal of Decolonizing Wealth, of the Decolonizing Wealth Project and Liberated Capital, and also the author of an absolute must read, Decolonizing Wealth. He's an enrolled member of the Lumbee tribe and he lives in New York City. Edgar, my friend, thank you so much for joining us on Future City and thank you for your continued leadership. Thank you, Wes, it's been a pleasure. I'm Wes Moore and you're listening to Future City here on 88.1 WYPR. Now we have to take a break, but please don't go away because when we come back, we'll hear from a writer who covers philanthropy closely about some of the trends that he is most hopeful about. Stay tuned. Welcome back. I'm Wes Moore and you're listening to Future City here on 88.1 WYPR. This month in the show, we're talking about the future of philanthropy. So as we wrap up today's show, uh, I am so excited to be speaking with David Callahan. He is the founder and editor of Inside Philanthropy, and he's also the author of The Givers, Wealth, Power, and Philanthropy in the New Gilded Age. It's a fantastic book. And David, thank you so much for joining us here on Future City. Great to be here. And so can you first just give us a big picture understanding of what philanthropy looks like in the United States right now? Well, right now we see a whole new class of billionaire donors who are showing up on the scene in philanthropy. And this is really the next act in this huge accumulation of wealth that we've seen in America over the last 30 years. Fantastic, you know, fortunes uh, at the very top of our income ladder. You know, you look at the Forbes 400 list and it just, it, your eyes pop out of your head with how much money some of these people have. You have Jeff Bezos, you know, Bill Gates, Mark Zuckerberg. I mean, they're worth tens and tens of billions of dollars. And many of these people are turning to philanthropy in a big way. And it's kind of a game changer with all this new money coming in. Meanwhile, you have, you know, lots of private foundations, including with august names like Rockefeller and Ford that have been around for, for decades and decades that are, that are continuing to do their work and often expanding and becoming more dynamic. You know, the one sort of downside is that individual giving by ordinary donors has really been falling off over the last uh, 10 or 20 years. Fewer of those small donors showing up to, to give to nonprofit organizations. So it's becoming a more top heavy uh, world, this world of philanthropy. Mm. And so I, I, I want to I uh, lean in on, on, on this point that you made here, because there does seem to be a bit of a, you know, almost as bit of a civil war 
within the philanthropic space, right? Where you kind of have the old school, larger philanthropic organizations. You um, you also have kind of this new birth of these, of, of the super foundations, of these ones that are just absolutely massive in size and scope and scale. And then you do have kind of like this new breed of folks who are, you know, the ones who have built these businesses that are now, and that have made them and have really put them on the philanthropic scene in a very powerful way, who are also in, in the way that they made their money was, was disruptive. And they're actually trying to look at philanthropy in the same way as a bit of a disruption in the way they're thinking about the traditional forms of philanthropy. And so how do you see all of that playing itself out? Uh, and particularly in the process of this past year, because I think COVID-19 has affected philanthropy and uh, in, in, uh, between the combination of COVID-19 and also uh, the racial reckoning. Um, how do you see all that playing out right now in this space? I do think that there's a lot of new philanthropists who've showed up at the on the scene, particularly from the tech sector, who've had this very... Uh, a dismissive attitude toward the old way of doing business. They've said, hey, we're not gonna build these stodgy foundations that kind of lumber along and pay out only 5% of their assets and are very conservative and risk averse. We're gonna take that same disruptive approach that we use to build our fortunes. Uh, Sean Parker, one of the, you know, the first president of Facebook is sort of emblematic of that, this sort of hard charging young philanthropist who, who's really had some unkind words for that old guard of philanthropy. Um, mm -hmm. But you know, it's it's been interesting to see uh, in, in recent years, you've had many of these older foundations like the Ford Foundation, like MacArthur Foundation, who've turned out to be more dynamic than you might think. And I think COVID-19 COVID has shown how some of those foundations can really be a little more uh, fast moving and hard charging. So, you know, right after the pandemic hit, hundreds of these foundations got together and said, hey, we're gonna change how we do business in order to meet the uh, urgency of this moment. We're gonna get rid of a lot of our grant making requirements. We're gonna give more general operating support as opposed to project support with all those strings attached. We're gonna, you know, just make it a lot easier. We're gonna give out money more quickly uh, as opposed to these long drawn out grant making processes so we can get the cash that nonprofits need to deal with this pandemic. And, you know, over 700 foundations signed that pledge, you know, within a, a couple months of the pandemic's beginning, and they've really uh, lived up to it. And a lot of, of, of dynamic uh, action has come from that supposedly old stodgy world of philanthropy. Meanwhile, many of these billionaire donors have, have sort of been MIA in the pandemic. You haven't heard uh, as much from, from some of these um, you know, people, as you might think, especially given how much money they've made uh, over the last year. I mean, they've gotten a lot richer uh, as the rest of America has really struggled and been hit hard. Well, and, 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 I, and I want and I want to touch base on that because I think that there is um, there also is this idea that uh, that that somehow philanthropy uh, can solve these problems and these challenges alone. Uh, and I think one thing that's happened over these past few years is I think the, you know, there, there, the, there's been a forced honesty that has ripped that lie off of the wound, right? The idea that philanthropy uh, is, is some, can somehow fix some of these things that have been longstanding, systemic, oftentimes generational and incredibly and, and incredibly intentional. How have you seen the, the, the mindset in the, in, of not just the philanthropist, but also how society has shifted and changed and how that has driven changes in the way that philanthropy approaches itself and approaches its work. 
Well, I think that the smartest philanthropists understand how scarce their resources are compared to the problems they're up against. Bill Gates is a great example. He, he presides over the biggest foundation in the United States in the world with his wife, Melinda. And he often says like, look, we don't really have very much money. I mean, the Gates Foundation gives out $4 billion a year back you know, today, Microsoft has a $10 billion a year research budget, just to give you a sense of the scale. You know, philanthropy writ large, including all donors, uh, gives out about $450 billion a year uh, to solve problems in a $20 trillion economy with 325 million Americans, right? So uh, I think that that people understand if, if, if they look at that kind of scale and know that philanthropy can't solve these problems by itself. Instead, it needs to work with other partners, government and business through um, kind of innovative collaborations to solve problems. And we're seeing a, a lot more of that. Uh, and we're also seeing philanthropists get more uh, uh, kind of courageous about using the money they do have to go up against some problems they've avoided, uh, taking on the deep structural uh, racial inequities in this country is a case in point, some, an area where we've seen a lot of change and shift uh, since um, you know George Floyd's murder. Well, it seems like another place that we've seen uh, uh, another move uh, really over these past years has also been on the issue of climate change. Um, you know, is, is how has the philanthropic community responded to the measure of climate change? And is there anything that we can learn from the way the philanthropic community has approached climate change that we can actually then take to the way philanthropy can respond to other challenges? Well, this has been a good news, bad news story. Climate change has been on the map of, for foundations for a long time, I mean, 20 years at least, with philanthropists saying, hey, we got to get a handle on this this challenge. I mean, this is one thing philanthropy does well is it kind of takes on these problems that may not be on the political agenda. You know, this is issues that politicians who want to get reelected next year are not worrying about. Philanthropy can also often direct resources to those problems and engage in, in innovation, prototype, you know, and, and test new models of solving problems. And there's been a lot of work on climate change in the, in the last 20 years, in the last decade in particular. On the other hand, the scale of giving by, by foundations to take on climate change has never really come close to uh, the scale of the problem. I mean, it's been like 2% of philanthropic dollars go for climate change. Many foundations, including some of the biggest, don't work on that issue at all, even though it is an existential threat that will affect all the things they care about. But, you know, one good piece of, uh, uh, of kind of encouraging news recently has been one of the world's richest person. Jeff Bezos has finally taken an issue, uh, an interest in this issue. Bezos put up $10 billion uh, for climate change work. He's gonna be giving out a billion dollars a year to take on this issue. Kind of, uh, that's a, what I was talking about earlier, real game changing effect on, on, on the ability of nonprofit groups to, to, to work in an issue area like this. Mm. When we when we talk about the idea of, of working on an issue like this, you know, it's interesting because you watch the amount of money that's also being put towards space exploration and all these other things is that you have you, you know, for the larger philanthropies, um, you really have a chance to spread capital around. You have a chance to hedge in some ways. Right. When people say if we have 
a source of philanthropic capital? Does it make more sense or, you know, or if you were advising to say, like, find the issue and drill down into that issue? Or does it make sense to say, like, find a collection of things that you think work in concert with one another? How do you, how would you advise? How, how would you talk with a, a new or a younger philanthropist about this issue and about ways that they can go about making their impact? Well, a lot of philanthropy is intensely personal. People go and, and give to issues they care about and, 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 you know, have followed for years and have often some expertise or knowledge of, and that's great. Uh, in terms of sort of whether to spread your bets or concentrate them, it's often best to concentrate them because, again, you're not talking about that much money in the grand scheme of things. Bill Gates, again, a good example, runs the biggest foundation, but it's a one with a pretty narrow agenda. The Gates Foundation works on global health and development, uh, and it works on K-12 education, and that's pretty much it, right? It doesn't work on climate change. It doesn't work on any number of other uh, domestic issues. It, it, Gates has really focused uh, their resources, and as a result, has had a lot of impact in terms of saving many lives uh, through vaccinations and other global health improvements. Uh, too often, these big foundations, you know, are, are trying to do like 10 different issues, uh, a place like the Ford Foundation or MacArthur Foundation. They have all these different issue areas. And you think, well, that's probably not going to be so effective with, with so much money spread around so thinly. Mm. I've been speaking with David Callahan, who's the founder and the editor of Inside Philanthropy, and he's also the author of, uh, of The Givers, Wealth, Power, and Philanthropy in a New Gilded Age. David, uh, thank you not just for your insights today, but also thank you for your leadership in this space. Um, it's made us all better, and, and we're greatly appreciative. Thank you. So before we go, I'd just like to end with a few thoughts and also a few disclaimers. As you might know, I am the CEO of the Robin Hood Foundation, one of the largest poverty-fighting organizations in this country, where over the past 32 years, we have distributed almost $4 billion to support housing, transportation, education, criminal justice reform, mental and physical health, anywhere where poverty is either the cause or the consequence, we will find, fund, and build if necessary. And so this topic today is incredibly personal. And so while I'm incredibly proud of the work we've done to combat the inhumane ill of poverty, including the $25 million Mobility Labs initiatives that we launched with others like the Weinberg Foundation, where we invested in securing economic mobility for families, including those here, right here in Baltimore, we know that philanthropy alone cannot solve the problem of poverty or, frankly, any other issue. Think about this. Every year, around $700 billion is put towards philanthropy. Now, people say that's a really big number, $700 billion. That is a big number. But here's the reality. Of that number, about half of that goes towards colleges and universities. Alma maters. So now you're down to about $350. And people say, well, $350 billion is still a lot of money. That is true. That is a lot of money. Half of that goes to hospitals and homes of worship. So now we're down to 175 for everything else, for poverty, for the environment, for animals, for veterans, for children, for seniors. Our future city will be one where philanthropy will play an important and a catalytic role, but 
that it moves in humility and understands its impacts means working in concert with government and businesses and NGOs and the people. Where philanthropy's capital should be patient, but not permanent, because the problems don't have to be either. Future City is produced and edited by Mark Gunnery. We welcome your feedback, and you can email us your thoughts and questions about the show at futurecity at wypr.org. Also, feel free to contact me directly on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at I am Westmore. If you want to learn more about some of the people and organizations we heard from today, or if you want to listen to previous episodes, please visit wypr.org and search for Future City. Future City airs here on WYPR on the fourth Wednesday of each month at 1 p.m. and then again at 9 p.m. So until next time, for 88.1 WYPR, your NPR news station, I'm Westmore. Future City is made possible by McCormick and Company. Through its Flavor for Life program, McCormick helps teach kids and families in Baltimore how to replace salt, sugar, and fat. More information can be found at McCormickCorporation.com.